Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Summetry. It can be found on the Global Summetry Project website. It is my great pleasure today to introduce to you Professor Carrie Brown. Uh, this is going to be episode 28 in the series Shaking the Global Order, Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump, and in particular, Xi's Leadership of China. Carrie's insights into China policymaking and politics are very well known. Carrie has served in both the public and academic sectors. From 1998 to 2005, he worked at the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office as first secretary of the British Embassy in Beijing, and then uh, the head of the Indonesia, Philippine, and East Timor section. Kerry is currently the Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute, King's College, London. Kerry has written a great deal about Chinese politics and its foreign policy. His most recent works include China's World, What Does China Want?, China's Dream, The Culture of Chinese Communism, and The Secret Sources of Its Power, and very recently, the world according to Xi, everything you need to know about the new China. So come with me into the virtual studio and I will welcome Professor Carrie Brown. So uh, welcome Carrie Brown to today's um, podcast on uh, shaking the global order, uh, foreign policy in the age of Trump. Are you there? I am, yes. No, Great. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to start by uh, raising a uh, piece that was written by uh, Nikki Haley, who was the uh, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and I think it's fair to say some suggest she's a future presidential candidate for the Republicans uh, after Trump. In any case, she wrote this piece uh, in Foreign Affairs um, on U.S.-China relations, and let me just uh, quote a bit of what she uh, wrote. She says, as China transformed... Many Western scholars and policymakers predicted that economic reform and integration into the world economy would force the country to liberalize politically and become a responsible stakeholder, of course, that famous phrase from Robert Zellick, in the international system. The idea sometimes called convergence theory was that as China grew wealthier, and clearly has, it would become more like the United States. The theory was comforting, but it didn't pan out. China grew economically without democratizing. Instead, its government became more ideological and repressive with military ambitions that are not just regional and defensive, but global and designed to intimidate. So I guess the question for you, Kerry, is from what you know and have observed of U.S.-China relations, is this, is this what, how you would describe U.S. Uh, policymakers and their thinking? And, and what happened in terms of U.S.-China relations? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly in the 1980s, uh, there was this engagement philosophy where the underlying assumption, I, I think, was that through economic engagement, uh, China would change. And that really reached its peak with, you know, China's entry to the World Trade Organization in 2001, where I, th I think a lot believed that this was justifiable, particularly in the United States, but also in Europe, because it would be a means by which China would have to change. It would need to politically change in order to liberalize its economy more. 
And I guess what we've seen under Xi Jinping in 2012 is a real huge rebuttal of that. Um, mm -hmm. It was already pretty obvious, but now I think we're living in an era where that kind of engagement with that happy ending for the United States, you know, political kind of uh, uh, dreams about China becoming like us uh, clearly hasn't happened. And mm -hmm. I suppose, you know, my kind of understanding really would be looking back that um, the variables were always so complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising that we've ended up with something not at all what anyone expected. And I don't even think what Chinese people expected. So this sort of hybrid system, the way that uh, it's described by Ambassador Haley is obviously, I, I mean, it's kind of quite loaded, you know, the idea of it being autocratic and oppressive. Yes, I mean, but whether you could really say its military ambitions are as coherent as, you know, she, she and others make out, I, I, I sort of am skeptical. Mm -hmm. But sir, it's not at all the kind of, um, you know, uh, ready-made ally that was probably being expected. It's become much more contentious and much more difficult to embrace. Mm -hmm. oh, and so let me turn to a, a piece recently uh, uh, done by uh, Farid Zakari, of course, a, a very notable commentator and an opinion writer for the Washington Post. He was uh, looking at, uh, at China and, and Xi Jinping's rule, and he says, ever since President Xi uh, Jinping became the country's supreme ruler, China's economic liberalization has slowed. And its political reform, limited in any case, has been reversed. Beijing now combines political repression with nationalist propaganda that harks back to the Mao era. Abroad, uh, China is more ambitious and assertive. These shifts are real and worrying. Um, is this how you see it, Kerry? And if so, why? Well, I think after Xi Jinping, uh, the country has entered this really, really risky period where they're trying to create this big powerful strong economy but they are trying to also maintain you know the dominance of the communist party and its monopoly and so i suppose xi jinping has been in charge of just balancing this what communist party leaders in china think is a very kind of treacherous path with lots and lots of risks so i mean economic liberalization has become way less um, imaginative because there's the sense of risk is too great um, political reform was never really um, you know kind of that strong even under Hu Jintao but has been slowed down you know village democracy and township congresses they never really kind of figured a great deal but now they don't really figure at all intra-party democracy no one talks about that these days uh, but what we do see, I think, which probably isn't commented on in these comments of, yeah. uh, by, by Mr. Here, is, is really, really a kind of strong nationalism. Um, you, you know, kind of that's um, way that that's almost like a kind of religion of the great state. You know, it, China is a diverse and hybrid environment. People have many different kind of beliefs and thoughts. Marxism, Leninism no longer really appeals. Xi Jinping thought really isn't the sort of mainstream thought, um, it's really the state nationalism, you, you know, this idea of the great nation state that is being brought back to its central prominence in the world that gets people inspired and moving together. And of course, that looks great within China, but is very problematic outside of China when mm -hmm. people see the nationalism. Yeah. So, so you've written um, a, a book recently uh, on Xi Jinping, uh, uh, described, uh, titled uh, The World According to Xi, 
And mm. you, you say all his tasks as leaders have been completely focused on the party and its health, sustainability, and centrality. So the question is why? Why would this be the way in which he would approach leadership? I mean, I think the un, you know the overwhelming assumption uh, by C and the leaders around him is that without the party, the nation doesn't have coherence and won't have the kind of strategic direction to achieve its national vision and goals. You know, this nationalistic vision of you know a powerful, rich country, and. So I think this is really critical. You know, we we outside maybe think that China can be powerful and great without this autocratic system. Mm -hmm. But I think that the you know uh, beliefs, the convictions of leaders within that system is that it can't. And and I mean the problem, of course, is that in uh, kind of describing and saying this, I think is really the way that Chinese leaders sincerely see the world. It's as though you know I'm validating it. I mean I'm not not saying that they're right, but I think that's the way that they fundamentally believe they have to behave they have to have the party in order to achieve you know the kind of unity they need in order to create a powerful strong country and this is so fundamental to that mission that they will do anything to defend it that's why you know they i think are doing all these repressive things not because they think per se that repression is good but because they do believe without unity china's great chance to be powerful and strong will go and that the one that will deliver that unity is the unified communist party under a unified leadership so and and where do where does the, i mean so there's no room for diversity as, as they see it i mean notwithstanding that you know there seem to be two two strands emerging you know deng xiaoping clearly you know had tried to separate uh, the party from some of the, certainly from uh, the economic activity, right? So there seemed to be some economic liberalization. This goes back several decades. And there were, it seemed to be kind of two, two tracks. And now, you know, the, uh, what what's given rise? I mean, is this uh, personal to Xi or is this more broadly felt among the leadership this this notion that diversity simply cannot be accommodated. Well, I suppose it's the party under Xi Jinping sort of reverting to a Leninist model. You know, mm -hmm. the idea that you've got to have political discipline by your key fighters in this battle. The battle is to achieve powerful, strong state by 2021, the centennial goal. Right. And then you go into the future, 2049, the 100th anniversary of the PRC, the People's Republic itself. These are critical moments. To get there, you've got to have, you know, the Communist Party with its discipline, its coherence and its kind of, you know, unified leadership. If you have a sort of uh, scrappy, more diverse, less unified party, you're going to add to the risks. So I don't think that they see within the leadership and within the party kind of, you know, structure they don't see diversity as a good thing. Of course, mm -hmm. in our systems, we think pluralism and diversity are good. Yeah. They, you know, the things that Europe and America have gone through in the last few years, you know, the sort of fractiousness and contention as the kind of things that they want to avoid. Mm -hmm. They see that as us becoming weak. I mean, they may be wrong in that, but that's how they see it. And they see, you know, the party really giving this sort of um, important, incredibly important coherence uh, where you know you don't want pluralism because that will erode that, and I think that's their strategic approach. 
Uh, is this, do you think, uh, a product in particular of Tiananmen uh, and the, the, you know, the kind of eruption that occurred uh, within society as a, uh, there um, uh, in 1989? Is that, or does it go, does it have deeper roots within the party? I mean, I think it's got deep and diverse roots. I mean, partly 89 and the existential shock of the protests and partly the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 and you mm-hmm. know the failure mm-hmm. of that version of communism, partly the color revolutions in the mid 2000s and then, you know, the Arab Spring, partly the great financial crisis and the way in which it showed that the West was, you know, weaker and probably more uh, economically vulnerable than China had thought. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, um, you know, its own history, the Communist Party as this, you know, sort of underground organization that's always just been into survival. So there's all sorts of, you know, contributions to this. But what we can see is, you know, a Communist Party today which will not tolerate uh, any organized opposition to it in society. And around Xi Jinping, at the moment at least, in 2020, does not seem at all keen on allowing diverse voices within the party. Mm-hmm. So it has become incredibly uh, restrained and restricted. Uh, that might be a great strength in a period when there's enormous amounts of, you know, kind of temptation and distraction. But it's also, of course, a source of weakness because it means crucial things that you know, could possibly be threats are not seen because no one dares to talk about them. Well, and that, and that, in a certain sense, leads very much to contemporary uh, politics for the moment. Um, you know, the coronavirus outbreak in, in China. Uh, do you think the way officials handled that outbreak, what, you know, first of all, what does that say about the party that there seemed to be this effort to simply hide it under a, under a bushel, at least in the early stages? Yeah, I mean, the coronavirus has been... Uh, problematic because it's shown uh, people who originally noticed this problem in Wuhan mm-hmm. uh, to, and you know some of them were punished uh, so it shows the sort of issues of governance and fear and cover-up within China it's also uh, become a cause of argument between China and the outside world because this is a China or- or- originated problem but it's now having an impact in Europe and will probably have an impact in America and so it's created a geopolitical sort of, uh, you know, kind of bad atmosphere too. So, you know, in a sort of strange way, this virus issue has illustrated, most unfortunately, but has illustrated uh, the problems of governance in China and what can happen with that when big problems happen, um, but also the problems of why it is that China's political system is an issue for the rest of the world because these sorts of things are not just problems for China, they're problems for all of us. And if China domestically has issues dealing with them, mm-hmm. we're probably impacted too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you, do you think it'll have any impact on Xi Jinping himself and his, you know, the, the, the cadre around him, the Politburo standing committee, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, if it isn't, dealt with so at the moment the numbers have stabilized and it seems that you know the kind of leadership have got a grip on the virus issue Mm -hmm. however if it's um not the case and the issue continues and people continue to be under quarantine and the country is basically closed down that goes on not for you know a few more days but for weeks or months there will be political consequences 
Now, I mean, the party could be very repressive in dealing with those and just stamp down, which is most likely. Um, it could actually be itself threatened. I mean, if things get very, very serious, um, it could, if it deals with the issue relatively well, uh, get political kind of, you know, kudos from it. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we're really at the kind of uh, point of, you know, sort of no one knows what these three options it will be. But one thing, sure, I mean, the party doesn't have much time to deal with this. You know, it's 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 a matter of days before things become really, really tricky if it can't deal with them. And so, in a way, does the coronavirus and the way in which they've dealt with it and the party leadership, we saw, you know, uh, uh, Xi Jinping kind of, you know, hide for a bit of time and then come back in. Overall, I mean, does his approach and the dominance of the party, does it reveal strength overall for Chinese, uh, for China or weakness? Which way does it cut? Well, I mean, um, the, so if it is the case that the Chinese government has been able to deal with this viral Mm -hmm. issue, um, then the argument could be, okay, this very, very sort of complete autocratic centralized system actually is able to deal with these crises maybe better than Western democracies because we at the moment are still struggling and it's not clear how we're going to deal with these issues. So all of that is going to be found out in the next few weeks. Um, If, on the other hand, it's shown to not be able to deal with it, of course, we can then say, yeah, this is really a a system that needs radical and, and very, very urgent reform um i mean i think the disappearance of xi was you know people argue that's because he was dealing with the crisis and why would he be in public while he's sort of you know dealing with these issues other leaders in the west like our own in the uk our own leader boris johnson has been you know kind of elusive for a number of weeks now (laughs) and criticizing him and the argument is because he has been busy running the country and not you know actually talking to people uh, so, you know, I, I guess in a democracy and in a, a one party state, you, you can use that argument and, mm-hmm. you know, you'll have people agree and disagree. The critical thing is, will which one will be able to deal with this issue and control it? And at the moment, uh, as of, you know, the end of February, we don't know. We don't, okay. And I think we're going to find out pretty soon. OK. And, and finally, on the uh, kind of the big picture question. Uh, uh, you, you've talked about, and, and you, in the book, you write about the fact that, you know, he, she is, uh, seeks, uh, to achieve China's greatness, including a very wealthy, confident middle class in China. The, you know, the kind of add on to that, though, and the, and the real question is, does, is, is she determined to have China achieve the, that status and the, all the material elements? Uh, including the military elements of a superpower. Is this where he's heading? Is this what he wishes to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think the mandate for Xi Jinping as the leader of the Communist Party is to create a powerful, strong, rich country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the military side, I guess, is because a powerful, strong country needs a military. <laughs> there is a big question over whether they'll ever use this military um, because as we have to remember that um, despite all of the concern about China's militarization and what it was the Southeast China Sea, it hasn't actually engaged any combat, you know, kind of uh, activity right. uh, since 1979 in Vietnam. And it hasn't really engaged with international combat since the Korean War, which is over, you know, 60, 65 years ago. 
So, you know, at the moment, we are in a position where uh, a lot of people think that a crime has been committed and they're looking for the evidence of the crime, but we can't find it. Um, and, you know, if China were to move quickly on Hong Kong, if it were to do something on Taiwan, if it were to get involved in military actions, we would immediately, you know, have proof that it is therefore a militarily problematic country and an aggressor, mm -hmm. and it would change our geopolitic, geopolitical attitude pretty, pretty quickly. At the moment, uh, it hasn't done that. It has not sent the army into Hong Kong. Um, it has not moved militarily against Taiwan. It's done lots of other things, but it's not moved militarily against Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, it has not uh, deployed its troops abroad at the, at the moment. It might do that tomorrow, and I will be then willing to eat a very big piece of gluten-free humble pie. <laughs> um, however, uh, I don't see it at the moment. Okay. I know uh, many people do see China's militarization as itself intrinsically aggressive. Um, to me, though, just because someone is carrying a big gun doesn't mean that they're going to let it off. But of course, they might. So, you know, I think at the moment, we're not really seeing the evidence that it is an aggressor, uh, an active aggressor. But we're seeing circumstantial kind of, you know, evidence that suggests it could or it might be. And that's the position we're in. It's very ambiguous. Very ambiguous. So, so let me end but, uh, with a, a, a comment from uh, Evan Osnos. Uh, Evan Osnos writes for The New Yorker and uh, yeah. spent many years in China actually writing about China for The New Yorker. He's, he's not yeah. in China today. But he said uh, the most viable path ahead, and here he's talking uh, uh, the China-U.S. rivalry, is an uneasy coexistence. And this may be expressing your view, founded on a mutual desire to struggle, but not smash the relationship. Coexistence is neither decoupling nor appeasement. It requires above all, and I think here he's talking about the U.S. side, uh, deterrence and candor and a constant reckoning with what kind of change America will and will not accept. Success hinges not on abstract historical momentum, but on hard, specific day-to-day -day decisions. What the political scientist Richard Rosecrans, who, who, by the way, as an aside, was my mentor, in his study of the First World War, called the tyranny of small things. Is this yeah. where the U.S.-China relationship is today as you see it? Yeah, and I think Evan's description is a good one. I mean, mm -hmm. I think we are already clearly in that era of uneasy sort of an acknowledgement by america and china that they can't really have an all-out clash <laughs> however i think uh, an understanding too that they are both deeply dissatisfied you know this is an unhappy marriage but they can't go to the di divorce courts you know they've got too many they've got too many surrogate kids you know <laughs> they've got they can't you know they can't separate their property it's terribly terribly difficult <laughs> but they're really not happy with each other so I mean, I guess the deal is, you know, that when China's in the kitchen, America has to go to the bedroom. When America's in the bed, you know, in the living room, China has to disappear into the loft. You know, mm -hmm. we, we are we're sort of in this era of uh, a lot of kind of uneasiness. Um, but no, and I think it's going to be a long term issue. No real sense that the two can really extricate themselves from each other um, because they are so interlinked you know in terms of trade in terms of services in terms of so many things so as the coronavirus issue shows 
in fact and the environmental issues global climate warming and all the rest of it um you know nation states singularly no matter how powerful they are just can't deal with these so you know that doesn't change china and america um have big big differences however ultimately their self-interest is going to need to mean that they have to find some way on these big issues of working with each other Mm -hmm. um and at that level, I think that's where things will slowly, painfully, mm-hmm. hopefully without a catastrophe, work out. But I think it's going to be a rocky, rocky ride. Uh, and finally, then, uh, do you see pathways forward which could improve? Speak uh, well, it could be from the China side, could be from the U.S. side. But let's focus on the on the West and the U.S. side. Are there pathways that we can follow that can improve? That obviously highly integrated relationship, but one that is very at times uncomfortable. Um, I think at a sort of deeper level, uh, there is a huge amount of, you know, person to person contact. There's a huge amount of mm-hmm. joint self-interest. Um, I think beneath the sort of, you know, the, 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 the kind of high level politics of, of national leaders like Trump and Xi Jinping, in fact, you know, in the many of the states in America, like California, in many of the institutions, there is a recognition that one has to work with China. There's a recognition in Europe that one has to work with China. And I think that doesn't change. There is a realization, though, that we have to work in a different way. And we're all trying to go through that, you know, kind of be more cautious and more risk averse. Uh, but this will take time. I think generally, though, uh, we are linked more than we are separated. And that's the thing that I'm optimistic about, but it's not going to be something that was going to be easy to achieve uh, in the next five to year, five to 10 years. I, I mean, we're, we're in a period of transition. Uh, and do you see this, just to, to, to finish this off, do you see this mainly as uh, moving forward on ec- economic relationships or more strategic relationships i mean where do we place our chips in terms of trying to improve the the overall balance between uh between uh, the west and and uh, and china well i think the common ground is that american european and chinese governments want good lives for their people right and in order to do that they are going to have to work together you know at the end of the day they're serving different communities but the basic thing they're after is pretty similar which mm-hmm. is a good standard of living and i think um you know it's different because of course in europe and america i guess governments are trying to preserve a good standard of living for many of their people in china they're just delivering it for the first time right but I mean, beyond that the basic mission is for the environment for growth for you know public health for mental health for all of these things they want the same thing they're just going about it in a different way yeah so to think about you know wanting the same thing but accepting that people go about it in a different way and how do we work together within that rubric uh, i think that's the sort of most important uh, mission and would that include then uh carry uh, some of these huge kind of existential issues like climate change Yes, it would include climate change. It would include, you know, public health issues, because I'm sure this virus issue that we're seeing at the moment is not, of course, it's not going to be the last. And, right. and it may well be 
a really, really kind of globally serious issue, you know, more than it is at the moment. Um, issues of general sustainability, food security, all of these um, are ones where we definitely have the incentive to work together. We know that and we are already working together. And I think that they'll be the basis for a future more more constructive relationship. But there will continue to be big, big issues about the way we try and achieve those goals. Well, Carrie, I want to thank you for um, uh, spending some time with us and uh, working through some of the uh, U.S., China, and bigger uh, West China kinds of issues. I really appreciate it and your focus on China itself uh, and your deep knowledge about China. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No, thanks for speaking to me.